how-to where two guys show you how to do it between the two of them. My name is Ari. And I'm Matt. And today we are joined by Andrew from Popular Urbanum, and we are going to talk today about living history impressions regarding the medieval city. Welcome on the show, Andrew. Oh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, great to have you, Andrew. So Andrew is a friend of the show, friend of ours. You've probably seen his work around. He is, as we sort of preface, the he's focused on the medieval city itself and, and urban life, especially in the late 14th, early 15th century. You know, a lot of his content through his YouTube channel and on his Facebook page and such is focused on the history of that specific facet of culture in medieval life. And he is going to help us create some guidelines and thoughts about impressions and what we need to bring to our living history if we're going to focus on someone who's from the city, because things work quite a bit differently in the medieval city compared to the, the rural areas. Uh, but before we get everyone into it, just for your background and such, Andrew, would you share with the audience how you got started and interested with love for the medieval time period in general? or the cities specifically? Yeah, absolutely. I kind of fell into the medieval period. I wasn't originally interested in, in the medieval. What I was actually more interested in is the ancient world, and I, and I still am. I hold a, a deep fascination with the ancient, uh, more so than the medieval. But the medieval holds... I believe, more of an impact on the modern world, which is why I, I study it. And and more more so the the medieval city and its its connection and creation of the modern state. So to to just extrapolate on that, I guess, is is much more important. Our modern world rose from the medieval capitalist middle class should i say how how the modern world arrived was because of the medieval middle class and the rise of the the burghers and the and the 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 capitalist class that that the birth of the modern state came from from the medieval world particularly the late 14th century and the the 15th century and that's what i really kind of have started to dig into Probably, what, say about eight years ago, uh, I've started investigating the medieval trades and um, when I say the trades, the trade networks, the connections with the Silk Road, post-Black Death, how the Black Death affected Europe and how the, the boom after the Black Death really impacted Europe, the post I would say the the crisis of the like the Middle Ages, what that did to Europe and the collapse of feudalism, and how capitalism wasn't really created. No one set out to create capitalism. It was just this thing that fell into the spaces to fill up as as feudalism kind of dissolved, because no one no one rose up and went, oh, we're we're done with feudalism. No one decided that feudalism was a bad thing at the time. It just kind of was just falling apart through its own, I would say, internal contradictions. And so capitalism started to take its place. 
and now obviously we know that later on in the in the 17th and 18th century everyone was really sick and tired of feudalism but that was a that was a gradual process and by the by the very end of feudalism the 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 vestiges of it had, had finally everyone had finally gotten sick of it and was ready to overthrow it but the death of feudalism had really begun in the 14th and 15th centuries and really the the collapse of feudalism began at the crisis of the late middle ages so it's all the stuff i'm really super interested in and and how we see this interchange of the middle class becoming the the aristocracy or an ersatz aristocracy and and becoming as wealthy or as powerful as as the nobility and how we see those very people today not necessarily the same people uh, obviously but how we see the what we would call you know the one percenters or whomever else we see that those the that same class that that ruling class today beginning as as the what we would have called the middle class in the in the in the middle ages and i find that very interesting how society has has uh has begun right there and then in in the medieval city states so that's that's why i kind of obsessing it it's an it's an absolute obsession for me hmm. now we we all know that there's this palpable change in the late 14th early 15th century really i mean it's the fall of the medieval era effectively in the rise of the renaissance and a lot of people attribute, obviously, the rise of the Renaissance to you know, rediscovering of, of certain old texts. And we, we look a lot into the philosophical rise of pre-enlightenment thinking and such. And I suspect that a lot of people discount the role of economics in the shift of society away from the, you know, the old feudal states and into something a little more capitalistic like what you were just describing. Would you say that the medieval city itself has a larger role in that transition than people sometimes give it credit for? Oh, absolutely. Um, without a doubt. The, the, the reason why the philosophy is given so much, I guess, muscle or, or power in that, in that role is because Re Renaissance writers and post-Enlightenment writers wrote, that's why this happened. They they were they were the ones that decided this is why the Renaissance happened, because they wanted to put themselves above medieval people who they looked down on because they wanted to push apart push past the past they wanted to push it aside. The the even the term the Dark Ages was coined by a, a Renaissance philosopher. So we're we're holding these ideas of the medieval or the, the dark ages from the Renaissance where they were held it in, in, in contempt. So they went, oh, we're better than the past because we've got, you know, free dark age ideas. We've, we've, we've grown and we're leaving behind the past. That's actually really interesting to, to think about the, their attitude of we're better than the past and we're leaving behind the past because I mean, the the Renaissance was sort of supposedly this reemergence of ancient ideas. Correct mm. me if I'm wrong. Yes. Oh no, ab absolutely. The 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 re quote unquote rediscovery 
of the of the philosophies of of the Greeks and the Romans, which which wasn't lost because obviously in in the in the Islamic Empire, they they not only had maintained them but surpassed them uh, in in so many areas. Yeah, that the Europeans were. Oh, oh, by the way, all the philosophies we can we can once again grow and be fantastic and re rediscover the enlightenment of of the glories of of the past. Yeah, it's quite interesting to be able to focus on some of these pre medieval classical ideas. You know, we we had a radical shift in how people lived, and as we were. We were saying the medieval city itself, a lot of what was able to foster that kind of thought was born there. Do you think that the medieval city is underrepresented in reenactment? And if so, do you maybe have some insight as to why? Oh, yeah, well, this is this is my this is my jam. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the medieval city is absolutely, in my opinion, underrepresented. There's a, there's a lot of reasons why it's underrepresented. Uh, num number one, people want to be able to represent an idea that they have, a, a romanticized idea that they have. Uh, not many people would like to go to reenactment events and perhaps depict a, let, let's face it, a, a workman. You know, they, they, want it, they want to be a knight, they want to be a noble. They want to be a a lady in waiting. You know, they want to be something glamorous because that's that's the idea that we have a sense of in in the medieval period of of something fun and exciting. No one wants to be a clerk. <laughs> you know, well, no you... no one yeah, often. You know, and and I'm talking about the community in general. Yeah, people don't people want to go to a reenactment event and do a battle. That because that's the that's why we go to reenactment events on on the whole. So if you if you look at look at if you go onto Facebook and look at a reenactment event, how many people are depicting a martial impression? Well, yeah, the majority of them, obviously. Yeah. I mean, that's it's by far the majority. Yeah, it's actually pretty interesting because the SCA, at least in my area, is full of people whose quote unquote backstory is that they are wealthy merchants so they're able to afford all sorts of different things i that goes back to a number of our episodes that we've had before about personas and also uh justifications for having different things uh, mm. ties in but i believe you I, I believe you're correct because i don't think that they're actually portraying what merchants would have been it's just a convenient sort of character point so it, it they believe it allows them to have a certain level of comfort um, not noble but not poor peasants either and it mm. allows them to say that they've traveled so they've accumulated so many things but I, so I, I i agree with you if people want to go and they want to do glamorous things and they want to be knights in shining armor they want to be ladies in waiting and they say they want to be merchants but i don't think they necessarily understand what that entails but they can be merchants and be glamorous as as i have learned from from watching the things that andrew has put on his channel there are plenty of 
martial-related, high-status, high-wealth analogs to the knight in shining armor or the lord in a urban city, you know, merchant or city autocrat style impression. So what are some of these things that people, if they wanted to not necessarily be a run-of-the-mill knight, but also still want some of the trappings, the visual aesthetics of the knight in shining armor, so to speak, what is available to them in the city for fuel to uh, to fuel their impressions? Well, if we if we consider just the the martial aspects in in the urban environment, we see middle at least in the middle of the of the fourteenth century, the rise of the militant burger knights, and that's when we can really put our finger in and say well this is a thing that definitely happened and when i say middle we're talking around about uh, i would i would say 1340 definitely the rise of the militant burger knights where they start forming their own orders of of knights they're dressing as knights they're definitely getting titles or gaining titles and this really starts creating a conflict between the the burger knights so burger meaning um of the city they're they're merchants they're craftsmen they're not nobility in any way shape or form they're definitely merchants or wealthy craftsmen they're purchasing all the trappings as to be a knight or sometimes even being offered by the city the things that you need to be a knight like say for example horses or arms and armor, and they're operating in defense of the city. What what they're doing is they're entering into conflict with with the knights, because the knights are, are saying, "Hey, well, we're we're we've got the super secret special club. We've been doing this for century, and what we are supposed to be doing is we're supposed to be the elite of the elite of the elite of the elite. No one's supposed to be knights, and the the knights, or the burger knights, should I say, are the ones who are saying, well, we're, we've got our own knightly orders and we're, we're starting to run our own tournaments because they're being locked out of tournaments because they want to go to tournaments. They want to do all the knight stuff as well. So they start running their own tournaments and doing knight stuff. Because they're creating their own orders and doing all their own knight stuff, some of them are actually marrying into knightly families to gain more prestige or buying estates because they've got lots and lots of money but you know just so that's where you start seeing a lot of that i was saying interchange between the aristocracy and the merchant class because the wealthy urban elite really you, you the lines super starting to blur at that point. Like, who is actually a knight and who is just, I guess, what we would call playing a knight? And it starts a lot of social conflict. The the real knight, what we call the real knights, they start putting more and more rules on who can enter tournaments. So you have to prove your aristocratic title more. It's like that scene from the A Knight's Tale where. Yes. Uh, uh, Chaucer is listing out son of Billy, son of Stephen, yeah. son of 
Chuck, you know, and yeah. the the Herald goes, oh, that's fine, Herald. You know, eight generations is more than enough. For, uh, yeah. yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So they have to prove how many generations they've, they've got the aristocracy in their family because if they've only got one or they've just been newly minted, it's not good enough. They're not they're not knightly enough. Now, this term burger, it it's one that I'm not as familiar with, obviously, because this this isn't the playground I usually romp around in. Now, things like the term burger and the term burger night, are these ones that we would see in the actual time period we're portraying? Or are these ones that we are using to describe things in the past that may have had different ter- uh, terminology in time? So Sam, someone goes back to do some research. And are they going to find terms like this? Because when we talk about knights and we say the word knight, there were German knights, there were French knights, and they didn't use that term. It was a very English term, really, Mm -hmm. uh, on the whole. And so was the term burger something you'd find, or is this something we put as a classification for our own study? That's a good question. Burger, I'd I'd really have to get a book. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Burger is one of those terms which is a. There's a lot of interchange for, uh, obviously, that word. We we use it, but they also use it depending on where we are. Burger means of the burg, and burg meaning the city. So, it's it's very Germanic. So you'll see. So like Pittsburgh here in the U.S. Yeah represent yeah, that's right. it's an yeah. old timey term for you know we say old timey you know a pittsburgh is pretty much you know a we use the word burg to represent this is a city or at least we yeah. used to in certain languages yes so i mean it's the same thing you we get the term suburb um for the the word urban which they also used um so the the suburbs formed from because you, you had your original city, and when they added new quarters onto the original cities, they they were the suburban areas. So that's how those. So as the cities grew, they added new quarters, and they developed the suburban areas. So the same thing applied to the the burgs, and you got the burgers, the people of the city. But that's that's once again a more German term. So burgers meaning people of the of the burg, and then you have the burgermeister, which is the master of the burg. So that's kind of where we get that term. And we um, should uh, we should uh, just interject here. We should tell people that if you go to research this, it's not burger as in B-U-R-G-E-R as in hamburger. You're gonna go eat a burger. It's B-U-R-G-H-E-R, as in yeah. Berg, you know, like, so just if you go to look that up, don't look for burger. If you look for burger no. night, it's going <laughs> to come up with a fast food chain from Hawaii. It's in Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be hungry and not educated. Yeah. And, and, and just, to, just to segue back on that one, for the French, it's the bourgeois, you know, like, yeah. which bourgeois night. Obviously, then we get the term bourgeoisie, which everyone probably would be familiar with that term, which means the upper class. 
but but at the time it it wasn't the upper class it it meant the the middle class the the people of the city this would go <laughs> into this would go into i think our one of our last episodes where we talked about the english yeomanry i'm pretty sure True, yeah that's where the burger knights would fall into they probably would have been something along like an, an esquire in england um, someone who has enough money to outfit themselves as a knight and has a significant amount of power but they are themselves not knights so yes the the yeomanry may have came from the the cities often they were the sons of craftsmen so actually just this sort of ties into what you're talking about when you, you talk about the 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 burbs and the the suburban area where they started splitting up the cities into different districts i've been reading chaucer a european life by marion turner mm-hmm. and she talks in that about these districts in london where, where chaucer grew up and yes. you know, there were the merchants they stood up like you have the the peppers district you had the you know cheapside district you had the vintners the wine district yes so it's and, and these are the type of people that these these burgers these these yeomen would have come from that suddenly found this new explosion of wealth within these trades such as pepper and wine yes yes absolutely so the i think i think if we dial it back a bit because what i really want to do is help people understand what the cities were and how they can realize like an impression from the city because i could talk about like the cities for a thousand years and not really <laughs> <laughs> not really get people to understand so if we think of the city not like the modern city today where it's you, you see more class segregation so you know you, you might see a really good part of town and you might see a really bad part of town and and you know you don't go you don't go over the tracks because that's where the the bad part of town is the the medieval cities were more diffused yep so obviously you have the royal quarter that's probably the good part you probably don't have the poor people living there but the 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 medieval city has has the core town you know and that that would have been the original city where the city would have formed around because all cities were originally a, a stronghold and this is this is a sweeping statement, but originally stronghold where uh, it would have been a, a knight's castle or a, a, a bishop's hold or whatever else, and then people would have moved there, most likely merchants or tradesmen or whatever else for protection, and then a, more and more people would have moved there because there would have been a lot of commercial production going on. And then over time, as as there is more trade and population growth, the, the walls expand out and out and out. And as population expands, they add another area outside these walls. And then they have to add more and more walls. And these become new suburbs, as we talk, suburban areas. And these would become new quarters. And there was no real kind of like, oh, okay, so this is the, this is the, rich people's quarters and that's the poor people's quarters there was there was kind of a 
a planning, a district planning in the sense that, okay, well, this is, we'll keep this area to trades. So you would have a district for, for a particular type of trade. They would try to make sure that hazardous trades were kept in a certain area because they were aware, obviously, that certain trades caused health issues. So they wouldn't put anything with like arsenic because obviously that that caused you know illness so they put oh so this is this is the trade that causes illness uh you know like tanning right in the middle of the city so all the tanners have to be at the edge of the city because they work with hazardous chemicals or keep them at the edge of the city that's fine and so but when it came to accommodation you could have a rich person's house you know housing right next to where where paupers live you know, where people were poor, because poverty was a huge issue during the medieval period, like something up to 80% of people in Europe were impoverished, even in the cities where, where there was massive wealth. And you could, you could be quite wealthy, like property-wise, but just asset poor. So you could have like a really quite wealthy manor or house in in the city, but you could be quite asset poor. So well, we have um, a term for that even today. You know, you talk about someone yeah. who gets too large a mortgage and they're quote house poor. You know, they mm. that's something we we experience even up to to now. Yes, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Um, and and not not to make this a thing, I see a lot of the the political and economic issues of the late 14th century. Often when I, I do a video on the economics of the late 14th century in my videos, people will comment, oh, that seems like today. And I was like, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so much Oops. for forward progress, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, it, a, a lot of it, uh, it's a lot of it's just to do with not necessarily the issues of capitalism. It's just the issues to do with, you know, wealth inequality. It, that's just. Yeah. So when we're talking about making a portrayal from the city, talking about wealth inequality, we don't necessarily see what is sometimes represented where in like what Matt was saying about the the SCA, where there's a large number of people who have grounded their impression in, oh, well, I'm a medieval merchant. And thus, you know, so that's why I'm not a pauper. That's, you know, we have this term, oh, if you're a peasant, you're clearly poor, even though obviously there were plenty of of perfectly acceptably wealthy or at least comfortable peasantry and and obviously yeah. very poor peasantry there was there was a ton of incredibly poor craftsmen and merchants as well who were just barely getting by so yes. when we are making impressions just like in the country just like any other medieval impression from rural areas we're going to see a high percentage of people who are subsistence living and a very small percentage of patricians and burger knights and the the incredibly well-to-do. Absolutely. If anything, I would say that people in the in the country, um, unless you're in, in, well, okay, let let's put it this way: unless you're depicting that in the 14th century, which is the the part that I really focus on, unless you're depicting someone in the country, oh, sorry, between 1317 to 1321, or the Black Death. You're, it, unless you're a, a pauper, literally impoverished, living in a hot, you know, in a hospital, 
which is not what we would class as a hospital today, you, unless you're like super, super wealthy, like one of those mega wealthy people, you're probably like living in precarious poverty. Like you're, you're a wage laborer, even, even as a quote unquote merchant in, in medieval Europe in the 14th century and 15th century. And like, unless you're super wealthy, which we would class as the patrician elites, which I kind of think about when people say I'm a, I'm a merchant, you're saying that's coded language for I'm super wealthy. You, you are literally like, I'm a millionaire, you know? And, and it's like, well, how, why is, why is everyone millionaires? I don't, I don't get it. I don't Mm -hmm. get why everyone's millionaires. Well, you think about the average, again, there's only so much yeah. we can extrapolate from modern society, but you think your yeah. average small business owner isn't isn't flying in jets to yeah. and from their their boutique shop in a you know Midwest USA small town, you know yeah. downtown area. So yeah, I, I can definitely see that when we try and make these parallels, and that is one of those big myths, and we see that a lot in justifications. Matt was hearkening back to an, an episode we had about how you know you don't want to use justifications for reasons why you would pull something into your impression when it, it otherwise doesn't have good evidence. And and what we find, we see a lot of as a crutch for that is I'm a merchant. So clearly that means I traveled everywhere and had access to incredibly diverse exotic locations and incredibly high valued equipment that obvi- you know I could afford to keep instead of actually continue to push through the supply chain and you know how those are not necessarily quality reasons to have anachronistic things in your impression and what you're saying is taking it even a step further in that the average merchant wasn't necessarily very wealthy at all now how much travel you know just addressing this this particular Mm -hmm. justification how much travel did a quote merchant in your middle ages you know the late 14th century have actually at their disposal it really depends i mean if we think about one of the most well documented merchants that we know of which is francisco de tini and like the guy literally had hundreds of thousands of like letters he wrote he didn't travel much at all he sat in avignon for years literally for years selling stuff to the papal household things came to him and then when he got kicked out of of avignon when they kicked out of all, all the like Florentine merchants. He went back to Florence and just had things bought to him. And he made he made obscene amounts of wealth because he didn't travel. And he was he was a very successful merchant. He relied on things being shipped to him. And and the most successful merchants didn't travel because they didn't have to. What they did is they relied on a trade network. So when someone says to me, I'm a merchant, I go, oh, okay, cool. So you sit at home and you manage your business. And what you do is you have agents who do the work for you. Or are you a, because if we think about people who say, oh, I'm an exporter, importer, they don't ship the goods themselves, do they? They, they, they They have people to do it. Right. The person who's actually doing the transport is some courier guy who has nothing to do with what's in the back of their truck. They just drive a truck, so to speak. 
and it's the CEO of the freight company or the or the mm. the actual business that is selling the item that that buys them in. And so was well, the question I have is, you know, again, should we use our modern the modern way that we do things as an example on how it was done in the past? Is it an actual myth? And I'm getting the impression that it that it is a myth that the merchant themselves didn't go around and mer- and do the the shipping and trading and follow the Silk Road, so to speak, that even in the 14th century, they still had a, a network of contacts and the majority of people who were merchants were effectively like CEOs of companies that did trading and the people who did the actual moving of the goods around were just laborers. Is that a more accurate example yeah. than the, the, the self-contained caravan master of D&D? Yes, absolutely. I mean, not, not, to, not to, you know, totally misrepresent the 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 accuracy of it obviously they still traveled some of them still travel for important agreements so you there are accounts of merchants going to make important agreements to set up merchant houses and and important diplomatic connections but they wouldn't they or, or when they're setting up their empires, traveling to a certain location to 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 purchase stock or 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 whatever else. But when we're talking about the the very wealth, you know, if someone says I'm a wealthy merchant and I got this in my travels, I, that doesn't make sense to me because all the wealthy merchants, the big houses, what they normally are, are big family affairs. And they often, well, when I say often, they always have their couriers or their agents who go and do the trading for them. They sit at home, they run the books, they count the money, you know, they do whatever their their agents and they, all the goods come in, they sell, they send the goods off and they write letters. They run, they run it like a modern business. It, it, it's not like D&D where they go, oh, well, I've picked up 40 bales of cotton from the Levant, I'm now going to sail off to, you know, Florence and I'll trade that for 80, you know, another hull of pepper. And I'm going to take that all around, all the way to, you know, Avignon. The Pope will want these. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have, you have dudes. That's how you become a you know wealthy businessman. And, and, and medieval period is the beginning of, of, of commodity capitalism where everyone's speculating on stuff sitting at home and buying shares and things. But okay, that's a, that's so, a quote I think we need to put somewhere, though. I mean, really, I think you just put it perfectly. If you want to be a wealthy merchant, then you need to have dudes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Andrew, I wanted to put in here quick, uh, go back to something you said earlier about how they're on the sort of precif- you know, precipice of pauperdom or, or you know financial instability. Thinking about that, helps make more sense of why it was fairly easy for you know let's take you know henry v in england for for an example to raise such a large army to take overseas because he was effectively offering them so much more money than they would have had oh yeah oh yes absolutely i think the really important thing here to to remember is that like the the workers like we think about the workers, right? They work seasonally. 
you you don't most work does not last all year round and you're getting paid way too because the thing that i'm really trying to get across to people in my videos is that the workers in the 14th century that's the beginning of wage labor the reason why you go to work today and you get paid whatever you get paid is because of the 14th century the guild masters decided that we all go to work and we get paid a salary before then wage labor didn't really exist as an idea like i'm going to do a video about it trust me but everyone worked seasonally right because there's a whole entire whole bunch of stuff that happened that affected people's ability to make a, a decent living wage. And so what a lot of people did in the 14th century, particularly the, the cities, is they would hire themselves off as mercenaries in the off season. So the other, the other side effect that you would see because of this is a rise in a professional soldiery. So when everyone talks about like medieval mercenaries, they kind of get this idea in their head, like this kind of second idea, like, oh, there's this professional mer mercenary class. Where do you think that came from? It's not knights. They um, Knights would not stoop to being mercenaries. I mean, some of them did. <laughs> but like there's this whole body of professional soldiers where do people think they came from? They're not peasants. The peasants don't have time to become soldiers. Nor do they have time to train. Like, I who's just, training peasants? They're too busy farming. I just get this it's, picture in my, my head now of some guy on the battlefield, you know, fighting against the guy, and the swords are clanging, and he's like, well, yeah, this is really just a side gig. Really, I sell pepper. <laughs> Yeah, well, it, it reminds like, me also yeah. of that scene in 300 where the Spartans are meeting the Athenians and it's like, oh, I'm a potter and I'm a leather worker. Like, you know, that was the 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 other side of the aisle there from the, quote, elite Spartans was a, a better representation of what you'd see in, mm -hmm. on the battlefield in you know, your typical medieval battle. Because most of these people, the majority of the people standing there doing the fighting had other jobs and this was something that they had to do or or needed to do or had no other work at the time yeah exactly so the the medieval cities were highly militarized because large portions of the cities were well all the cities in fact were free cities well not all the cities but large portions of the cities were were free cities but all the cities were at, under constant risk from external forces trying to take control of them so either they're they're princes that that ruled them going oh wow these guys are super wealthy enemy invaders so hey these dudes are super wealthy let's invade them um other cities and and more importantly the cities were always seeking to protect their economic interests and the only way well, there's a couple of ways you can do that, but the most important way that you do that is with military power. And there's a whole bunch of jerk knights riding around <laughs> raiding you. How do you stop them with military power? So 
the the medieval cities raised armies and because most of the the military most of the knights wouldn't stop other knights from raiding merchant caravans because hey we're not going to stop other people from doing the gig that we like to do the the, the medieval cities enforced the peace of the roads themselves hmm. now in someone's making a living history impression we all acknowledge that you know, say you go to an immersion event, you got plenty of time to sit around the fire and talk about things like we've just talked about and the, the nuances between knights and burgers knights and and who is actually out on the road doing good or doing bad and all that and and whether you know the the truth of chivalry versus you know the actual extortion of Batiste and such. You know, we have that opportunity in in environments like this when we're chatting. But we all know that we have a very narrow window of time if we're ever trying to deal with the public to yeah. try to impress any of this information along. And one thing I think that reenactors need and is a way to have a visual shorthand of things that are happening in their impression. Is there anything that is visually distinct? Because as we're talking here, we had people from the cities who raised their own armies. They had their own arms. They had their own livery they had people who were effectively representing what knighthood was on a wealth level even if they weren't accepted on a social level is there anything visually distinct that if someone's making an impression of a city dweller that would differentiate them from an impression of a similar status maybe they're doing maybe they're a, um, a artisan and they're you know they're journeyman level they're not incredibly wealthy so they kind of have the equivalent of your your typical peasant farmer impression on when it comes to wealth but is there anything that would look different between them or did they generally have the same visual aesthetics yeah exactly the same exactly the same so that's that's the that's where this gets tricky right this is where it all gets tricky and this is this is why every why i believe everyone's been fooled for a very long time and when i say everyone's been fooled academics and and reenactors where people will looking at say for example medieval images and they see somebody and they go oh that person is clearly a knight and then if you if you stop and you really do some research you'll find that that person's not a knight that person is a a, a wealthy merchant or 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 a burger or you know what's actually been depicted is a is a bunch of wealthy citizenry, but the other problem is, and and this is a really good thing to bring up, that all the art that we have that's created and presented in, say for example, manuscripts, is intentionally written and created for the the elite classes right so if you think about like all this all the like the stuff that was created for duke de berry like trey shower right and anyone that speaks french i'm sorry um <laughs> but if you think about that which depicts the 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 height of the aristocracy and it also has some peasants farming if you if you really look at that at the uh, the peasants they are in tatters now 
did peasants dress in tatters? Sometimes. But that's coded language for the French aristocracy who had absolute and utter disdain for the peasantry. That's that's a coded language. That's not an accurate reflection of how the peasantry would have would have dressed. Just as much as if you look at the Grand Chronique, right? And you look at how the Shakari are depicted um in the Grand Chronique. Is is that a, an accurate or true reflection of the Shakari? And like even if you read how like of the Shakari uprising and how how Frossart talks about the Jacquerie. He talks about them as being ruddy and dirty and like almost like animals. So any depictions, like artistic or literary depictions at the time of for the for the elites of of the people of the city, for those people, is always going to be in a bad light because they did not like them. They had a very poor opinion. You know, the only time that we see anything of good character is obviously in the Italian city-states because these are people who are making art for themselves of themselves. Yeah, makes sense. And also in the 15th century when you start getting more, like, people of middle class making art of themselves for themselves. So it starts to switch. Right, so you get the the mercantile classes getting more wealth and spending money for themselves of themselves, and that's really important. So, does that? I don't know if I directly answered that question. No, in a way, you did. Oh yeah, you definitely did. And we we all accept that there was very little in the way of you know journalistic integrity, so to speak. You know, chronicles were biased. They were they were written for specific patrons, and they were expected to to have a message like we realize and that is something that when we start to research we have to accept that art and literature in i mean even all art and literature is usually biased in some way and doubly so in the eras that we're trying to use them to give us information but is there any good resource as you said there were there started to be some visual depictions near the end of the medieval timeline as actual middle class are starting to create art for them and again just in instead of having the the bias against them they're just per, they're commissioning art and literature that has the bias in their favor so to speak what would you say is a really beneficial or, or are there good quality useful resources that someone who wants to do more on a on an urban impression or a city dweller impression can use to try and get an accurate or a more accurate view of what they're going to portray compared to what maybe the aristocracy had to say about those who lived in the cities that's that's something i'm really struggling to answer for myself i mm-hmm. i ultimately end up looking at italian frescoes um sadly if you're not depicting any italian sort of depiction that that really messes around with you because obviously Italian fashion is different from the rest of Europe at the time. So if you say, for example, um, want to depict something that isn't Italian, 
it's very hard. If you're not depicting Italian, however, you could look at anything, say, for example, from the Hanseatic League. Uh, the Hanseatic League was also a bunch of, you know, city-states. Um, yeah, it's it's just really hard. It's really hard to to give a have a solid answer there, because as I said, yeah, the text stacked against us in that particular regard. Yeah, yeah. Andrew, what one question I have for you, and we all know, doing when we do these talks and presentations that people always come in with some preconceived notion and or or perpetuated myth what is one myth about medieval city or medieval city life that that you would love to just put the nail in the coffin right now oh yeah okay so the 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 biggest myth is that medieval cities were dirty they weren't they were well Oh, okay. So they weren't—they weren't necessarily well planned, but they were clean. They were well drained, and they were safe. If I understand it, there were actually—it was effectively like a medieval homeowners association. There were fines that could be levied for having dirty curtilage or for disposing of your night bucket improperly and such like that. It was, there was actually rules, laws, sort of like what you'd find for a, you know, nowadays if a city gives you a ticket for not cutting your lawn, those things existed. It wasn't just a free for all of, of filth and, and disgusting living conditions. Oh, uh, absolutely. So you couldn't, butchers couldn't dump their guts on the, on the, on the sidewalk. I was just reading yeah. an account where a butcher was fined for uh, uh, dumping the basically all the unused or old waste out on the sidewalk. Yes, yeah. Yes, there you go. Butchers, for, another thing is butchers weren't allowed to keep meat longer than a day, so it had to be freshly slaughtered. There was, there was, there was statutes about everything. You know, people, you know, water, water was a, a huge issue in medieval cities. They always tried to keep it clean and flowing. Like I talked about making sure certain industries were kept out of the city because they knew that they were bad, that they made people sick. So they kept things like tanning or any like dangerous chemical works on the edges of town and, and tried to keep it downstream so it would, you know, like flow away from the city. There was always good drainage. Not all cities were paved. And if they weren't, they would have, wooden sidewalks and a gravel ditch in the middle of the middle of the road for drainage so they were they were well planned because if they weren't people would get sick they didn't understand why people would get sick but they knew people would get sick more importantly who wants to live in a dirty muddy city where everyone's walking around all the time I don't have a good answer for that one because I wouldn't want to. <laughs> no, I don't, no, I don't either. Yeah, but we we have these we have these ideas because after obviously the medieval period we get into the Renaissance and then we suddenly have after the enclosures and the 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 boom where everyone starts moving to the cities 
writers start thinking, well, if the cities are bad now, they must have been worse back then. They can't click in their head, well, why, if everything's terrible now, it must have been worse in the medieval time. They can't have been better than they are now. So they, they start creating these ideas because this view of history, we're great now, it must be worse in the past. So they pen that medieval cities were terrible. They were, they were cholera ridden, they were dirty, they were smelly. Everyone's getting punished because obviously they're punishing everyone, right? Like because they're overcrowded, there's lots of crimes. So medieval cities were full of crime. No, there was crime. Like I'm, I'm not the, I'm not the first person to, you know, defend medieval cities because medieval cities were, were very, very dangerous places. Everyone carried weapons. You had to, but everyone still abided by the law because it was, it was your citizenly duty. It was, it was, and if you didn't, if you didn't do your job, you could be exiled. That was that was the the, the greatest punishment. People think that everyone's getting executed in medieval cities, but the the worst thing you could be punished with is exile. Um, yeah, sometime we'll have to have you back and talk about social proof and fama, and hmm. that's a whole a whole new topic. And we'll we should definitely talk about that one later because that's always a very interesting subject about the amount of of like civil casework and fines and ostracization that it was involved in punishment compared to just you know the the ridiculous idea of mass hangings and you know public beatings and all that kind of stuff so yeah that's that's something i'm very interested in hearing about but i'm we may have to come back for that one yeah yeah <laughs> yeah um, um so we're reaching about an hour here so mm -hmm. without stressing the the bladders of our listeners i was hoping you could <laughs> take a moment here at the end to sort of tell people about where they can find you and what you do online and and you give us your your handles and things we'll put everything in the descriptions below but if you wouldn't mind sharing what you do and and the things you do online yeah absolutely well uh you can find me primarily on youtube at uh my YouTube channel, or I should say our YouTube channel. I, I do co-produce videos with my partner, Ocean. We discuss the medieval middle class and recreating the fashion and reenactment of the time, but also the, the medieval middle class and the, the society of the time. We're also, I'm on Facebook under Modern Medieval Man and on Instagram under the same handle as well. Excellent. Well, I'm I'm really grateful that you were able to wake up early and come talk to us. We obviously struggle with the time change, but yeah, you were able to to stick it out for us. And we really I mean, this was an incredibly valuable episode. So I'm I'm very grateful that you were here today. And thank you for being here. That's no, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks. All right. Matt, do you have any closing thoughts? Uh, I do. Uh, other than uh, professing my disdain for Frossart. Which was mentioned earlier, <laughs> but no, that's another two-hour episode right there. All right. Well, so we are going to close things out and thank everybody. Thank you all for watching. If you want to see more from Andrew, obviously go and find him on Instagram, Facebook, subscribe to his YouTube channel. All of those links will be down there in the description below. If you enjoy what we're doing here and you want to see more, or rather hear more, especially interviews like this. 
see if you can find us on your favorite podcast engine. Go ahead and give us those five stars. It helps push us up in the ratings. It also gives us what we're talking about, enough fama and social proof to get on more guests and more interest from people around who have the information that I know you want to hear. And and if you hate Frostart as much as I do, uh, look up our Facebook page, How to Medieval, and uh, <laughs> comment, like, and share. Fantastic. All right. Bye, guys. A special thanks to Paul Butler, whose music is used in our intro and is being used with his permission. You can find more of his music on his website, 